Hey, everybody. Welcome to Around the Farm, the podcast about all things ag. I'm your host, Clint Schaffer. And on today's episode, we're joined by Brad Coleman, the Director of Weather Strategy at the Climate Corporation. Brad's going to give us some insights on what we can expect going into this planting season and also throughout the summer. So stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting conversation. Hey, Brad, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, and welcome to Around the Farm. Thank you. It's great to be here, Clint. Yeah. So how about uh, how about you give us a, a little background uh, about yourself? Let the listeners know who you are. Sure. Uh, atmospheric scientist at climate. Uh, and it's an easy story because it didn't take me long as a kid to figure out I wanted to be a weatherman. So grew up a frustrated snow lover in Seattle, Washington. But, for, you know, and interesting is, as a kid, I used to go back to Mason City, Iowa, uh, visit my uncle back there. And we drive from Des Moines up to Mason City. And I go by all those cornfields and I always fascinated by it. And here I am, you know, decades later, uh, even more fascinated by what's going on in those fields. Um, so yeah, kid, I went off to school, atmospheric science, uh, graduate school, got my PhD in atmospheric science, then over to NOAA. And I spent a career with NOAA uh, doing all sorts of things from a weather forecaster in Juneau, Alaska, uh, to it's a lot of time in Seattle where I grew up. And I also was a lab director in Washington, DC. So I spent a lot of time in NOAA and then Oh, seven, eight years ago, I left NOAA, went to the private sector, and I've been with Climate now for just over six years. And my current role is Director of Weather Strategy, and it's a, a really fun role. And it really is one where I get to work across climate and bear, and I just make sure that the scientists and all those hardworking, really smart people we have developing all these different tools and producing the stuff we do at Bear that they have access to the right weather information. So it's just a really, uh, yeah, it's a great job. I love it. I, I know, Brad. That uh, you know, weather, of course, has a has a huge impact on uh, on the ag sector, right? I mean, that's probably one of our uh, our biggest uh, variables that we have. And you mentioned, you know, of course, going back to back to Mason City, Iowa, and seeing those cornfields. Uh, what do you love best about mixing your passion with weather with agriculture? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think it really is. You know, over the course of my career, I've got to see the value of weather information go up so much. You know, when I was young, you know, weather forecasts were often more the butt end of a joke than sort of a decision-making tool. And now you see every day we're having different industries making real decisions based upon weather forecasts and weather information. It may be moving aircraft off the East Coast ahead of a nor'easter, but there's so much value in that weather information now that we've developed on the atmospheric science side. It's just awesome to be able to bring that value to what we do at Climate and bring that value through our modeling and different aspects onto the growers across the Corn Belt. You know, just across your career, I mean, you, you, just when you were you were introducing yourself there, I mean, uh, you've had a, you've had quite the journey. Uh, how about how about some of the technology or advancements uh, that that you've seen? You know, just in your career, uh, really in regards to weather. I mean, is it is it the same stuff that we've been seeing with our seven day forecast, or is there has there been a lot of changes? I guess in the background, amazing changes, and, and that's what. It's also a very, it's a big challenge in atmospheric sciences from, you know, the models that we used to use when I was in school. Uh, 
incredibly primitive. And what's gone on in, in the advancement of the numerical weather prediction models, the observations. Here in the US, we have an incredible network of radars, the satellite technology, advances in all of the infrastructure and the computing speeds that has enabled a, a forecast process just incredible. But we still communicate a lot, partly cloudy chance of showers. And, and it really is, you go back and, and, and the communication piece is something that we just hasn't really kept up with what we're able to do in atmospheric science today. Yeah, well, and that's why I kind of ask, you know, because uh, you, you see a lot of the forecasts, especially on TV, you know, I mean, uh, like you said, a lot of things haven't changed as far as for the communication. I do have to say, though, on a lot of uh, apps and different things, I'm always fascinated how it seems like anymore, it, it, you know, a lot of these things can tell me exactly the time that it's going to stop raining, right? I would assume based on my location, but uh, it, it's, it's amazing how accurate that I, I've seen some of these, uh, these weather uh, forecasters be. Yeah, we're able to really blend a lot of the very, you know, recent past, the radar, the numerical weather prediction models. We confuse those data together in a way that we know essentially the distribution of rainfall right now at this minute. And we also use similar tools to extend that a number of hours into the future. And, and yeah, they're very good. Uh, since I say that, you'll you know, complain next time. But you know, overall, the, overall, the performance is, is incredible. And I, I often am impressed myself as an atmospheric scientist how when I get my app and it tells me it's going to start snowing or raining, and sure enough, there it goes. Well, hey, uh, what what do you see? You know, especially rolling here. I mean, we're we're into planting season, right? And uh, and we've had some had some big rain events already in in part of the Midwest. Uh, what kind of patterns are you, I guess, kind of expecting to see maybe this year, this spring, uh, for this planting season across the Midwest? We're actually, you know, there was a La Nina this winter, and, and well anticipated. That's one of the few things we anticipate, you know, several months out from about summer on. So we knew it was going to be La Nina and all the forecasts were really for that kind of a, a winter. And all in all, it panned out pretty well. Uh, so here we are, spring, we're emerging from uh, a rather, overall, a, a rather warm winter, uh, especially across uh, some of the north and, and on the dry side as well. What's interesting is that winter, which was about what we would have expected for La Nina, it had two significant weather events. We had the tremendous Arctic outbreak in February that came from Canada all the way to the Gulf Coast and wrecked havoc across the, the whole Midwest. Enough, enough cold air in that one event that some of the anomalies for the winter actually went a little bit on the cool side because those were so incredibly cold, even though overall the winter was a mild winter. The other big event was this big snowstorm spring event that deformed in Colorado, uh, really heavy snow, several feet of snow in the, in the foothills of the Rockies there and moving east and spreading precipitation. So the area that the soil moistures are a bit high are actually Nebraska, that area from that one spring event. Otherwise, you know, if you look at some places in Nebraska up until that event, they were running maybe 20% below normal on rainfall. And now they're up to two or three hundred percent above normal just from that one event working its way across the Midwest. Uh, the other probably noteworthy thing is we're emerging with pretty concerning drought across the Dakotas. Uh, places up there, Fargo, maybe got twenty percent, twenty-five percent of normal through the whole winter, and that's concerning. So already the soil moistures are deficit 
uh, drought, exceptional drought in some places. Uh, even in Texas, we're seeing drought. And then the middle section there got that relief from the one storm or we would have probably seen more concern about drought that full north-south corridor. So moving ahead, the La Nina has faded. Essentially right now we're in what called neutral conditions. So we no longer get the advantage of knowing how the tropical Pacific is going to influence our weather. So we're looking at some other indicators. The models are coming in now. And overall, they really show sort of a progression to a pretty benign early, you know, late spring, early summer. Uh, we, we've had some cool shots. We start, March was phenomenally warm. You know, we had departures uh, in temperatures 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit across the north uh, Minnesota Dakotas. We lost some of that as we got a few cool surges down. And, and one's actually just ending now as, as we, we chat. But the flow is turning more westerly, so I think we've seen the last of these cool surges coming down. And now it'll, it looks like kind of on the dry side, uh, which is probably good for a lot of people who have the soil moisture ready to go, more concerning for those people that we talked about with the drought developing. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're probably one of those folks that could probably see a little bit of dry weather around us. We ended up uh, with about a, I don't know, four-inch rain event uh, here. Uh, so a lot of water standing and uh, right on the front side of planting. So probably could use a little, a little dry time here. I, th I think we're looking good. Uh, again, it's always, always, the devil's always in the details, and we can talk about these general areas, but if you happen to be in a place where you get a few different thunderstorm events moving over, you can, yeah, quickly moisten things up pretty quickly. Well, that's what, you know, always fascinates me, Brad, you know, as, as I look back throughout the, the different years and, and different uh, weather events, it's crazy to me how, you know, you can be in the same area and across the road gets five inches of rain and on the other side of the road gets an inch of rain. You know I mean? It's just amazing uh, of just how some of those splits end up happening. Because uh, we've had some fields where you look across and there's water standing and the field down the road uh, looks like you could probably go out and plant it, you know? Yeah. We, we did a study like that at Climate, actually. We put rain gauges all the way around a 100-acre field, and we saw differences between rain gauges from one quarter to the other, 50% difference during some storms. Wow. So pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's that is fascinating. I do have to ask too, and this is just probably my lack of knowledge on, uh, on, on the different weather events. What is the difference? I always hear every year, or seems like every year, I always hear of uh, El Nino or El Nino or La Nina. What is, what's that actually mean? El Nino, La Nina. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating global story as far as weather. Uh, and if we had a lot more time, I could go into a lot more detail. But basically, what it is, it, it goes all the way back down to the tropical Pacific Ocean uh, along the equator from South America to uh, Indonesia. And the typical pattern, neutral conditions, it's hot in the, in the Western Pacific, cold in the Eastern Pacific due to upwelling. And that's just kind of your pattern that develops. Well, it changes in magnitude. Occasionally, the, the trade winds that cause the upwelling, they weaken. And that warm water in the Western Pacific gradually works its way east. And then in La Nina, what happens is the trades increase and the cold water, the upwelling strengthens and it goes farther to the, the west. And why we're concerned about, you know, tropical Pacific temperatures, ocean temperatures along the equator, you get that question a lot. Well, why does it matter to me here in, in Iowa? Well, it matters because 
the thunderstorms follow that hot water. So wherever that hot water is, we get tremendous thunderstorm activity. So right now during this La Nina that just ended, there was a lot of thunderstorm activity in Indonesia. We just saw the flooding going on in Australia. That's all associated with La Nina. So again, why Iowa? Well, what happens is those thunderstorms, they affect the jet stream that's coming off of Asia. So depending upon where they're located along the equator, it controls the direction and strength of the jet stream as it moves into North America. So it's all to us, it's all about hot water, controlling thunderstorms, controlling the jet stream that steers storms in different directions across North America. Wow. That, that, uh, that's a lot going on right there. <laughs> you just, you wouldn't think that, uh, that the temperature of the ocean clear, you know, half a, half a globe away would, uh, would impact our weather, but, uh, yeah. it truly does, right? Yeah. It's, it's really, especially for seasonal forecasting, it, it, it is the one tool that we can be pretty confident about. So we're, we're pretty fortunate it happens because it does give us situations where we can be confident about a, a seasonal forecast. Does it make it easier to forecast then? I mean, with, with one of those events in place? Yeah, especially in, in depending upon the strength of them. And again, El Nino, La Nina is something that develops in the ocean. If you, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg on, on things. But if we assume it starts in the ocean, the ocean evolves more slowly than the atmosphere. So as we see this in our models predicted to forming, typically by midsummer, we are pretty confident that we'll know what phase we're going to be in the coming winter. And what's nice there is that allows us, because then we know these relationships between the phase of the ocean, tropical Pacific Ocean and what, the, what, what likely is to happen weather-wise. It, it doesn't nail it down. There are always differences. There are all these, you know, again, you can get bit by a storm that's kind of an anomaly that can kind of mess things up. But overall, it's the one indicator that we can really hang our hat on as far as the seasonal forecast. Now, what, one of the other questions I'd ask, you know, as, as we look into uh, just some of the, the forecasting, um, how accurate do you feel like the old farmer's almanac is? I mean, is this a, is this a tool that I can grab at my grocery store and I can count on? Well, you I mean, you certainly can pick it up and, and, and it, it's, it's good entertainment. And I won't even say it isn't useful in some ways in that the farmer's almanac knows a lot about science and they know a lot about marketing. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's where maybe over Noah, who knows a great deal about science and invests a lot in doing seasonal projections and things, and, and a number of centers around the world, no one really has that, that secret sauce. They're really using the same tools. They're looking at the same kind of forcings like El Nino, La Nina. They can look at long-term trends by doing some statistical analyses and the like. So everyone's pretty much in the same. And, and when you do the, the comparisons, everyone's about as skillful as the next person. What the Farmer Almanac does is they actually take it that next step. And instead of me telling you, Clint, that this next summer is going to be, this coming summer is going to be hot and, and wet or something. Uh, that's what NOAA would do, is they would give you a probability it's going to be on the warm side and the wet side. What Farmer's Almanac does is they turn it back into weather. So they take, you know, a typical storm cycle in the summer in the Midwest is, you know, every five to seven days something goes by. So since it's going to be wet, then I'm going to throw in a storm every three to five days. And they just kind of spread it through. So you can read the Farmer's Almanac 
and it turns it back into weather. You know, it's great marketing and it's a great strategy. And, you know, everyone's pretty forgiving that you missed it by a few days, right, on that storm. <laughs> you know, so it works really well. One of the other questions I'd ask Brad, you know, and, and maybe it just feels this way. And you talked about it uh, earlier in the segment. You know, you said that uh, uh, we were, you know, below average on on uh, on rainfall or snow and then all of a sudden one weather you know system comes through and it kind of catches us up or even puts us uh, above average um it feels like and some of the things that i hear from farmers out there is it feels like we're getting into uh more extremes whether it's extreme rainfalls or extreme cold temperatures when they hit when that you know polar vortex rolls over us or extreme snowfalls uh is that is that a reality? I mean, or is it just feels that way? I guess kind of what's, what's your thoughts on that? There are a number of indicators that do suggest that we're going to see more extreme weather events as, as we go through uh, ongoing climate change uh, around the world. There, so, yeah, it's not unanticipated by the scientific community, and we're seeing these. And there are, there are some good physical reasonings and some model simulations that show that we'll see more extreme events and you might have heard the, the debate after the, the cold outbreak, outbreak into Texas where, you know, how can this be global warming or some scientists saying, and, and that all ties into the jet stream and the influence of global climate change on the strength of the jet stream. So it, it's not surprising. The other thing I would point out is that as the atmosphere warms, it can hold a lot more moisture and, and it holds it a lot more moisture, in an exponential way. So you warm up the atmosphere, the temperature a little bit, and you get a lot more water in that air mass. So now we have the similar storm coming along and it may be tapping air that's, you know, just when we're talking about climate change, it's on average is not a lot, but you put a lot more moisture into that storm. So you get a lot heavier rainfall. So that signal is fairly strong and, and the scientific community is fairly confident that these extreme rainfall events will likely go up. Yeah, because that, that's just one of the things, like I said, that we 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 tend to feel, you know, and and like you you mentioned there, Brad, uh, which is a good point. You tend to remember those big rainfall events or the the big things that impacted your crop. Uh, I go back to on our farm, two thousand or uh, August of two thousand and eight. I think we ended up with a storm that passed through, and we had seven or eight inches of rain that landed on our farm, and uh, we some of that water was there for, I know it was multiple years that we ran into a wet spell there. And, uh, and those are the things that stick with you, right? I mean, that was a huge impact on our crop that year. So one of the requests that I'd have from you, Brad, you know, being, being the, the atmospheric scientist that you are, uh, I, I would like you to just kind of make it happen to where we get an inch of rain every week, uh, 85 degrees throughout the growing season. That, that's, that's my only request that I have from you. Uh, next question. No, <laughs> we we do the best we can in forecasting it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hey, what are some of the tools that uh, that you'd recommend? Uh, you know, our listeners to to go out there and check out and uh, and 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 try using. Well, certainly, you know, climate field view hopefully handy. Uh, we we give some weather information, basic weather forecast, hourly weather forecast in there. Your rain, you know, current rainfall past rainfall, you can look at some integrated seasonal amounts. So it, it's a good source for some basic weather information, especially localized to your, your neighborhood. 
so it's not a, that's a good tool. It, you know, it's the real value in that, of course, is all the additional uh, agronomic modeling and stuff that we bring you, climate field view. Uh, we're really fortunate in the United States as far as weather information in that we have an incredible weather infrastructure uh, from the, the weather radars to just the investment, the academic uh, investments. We also have a really strong private industry in, in the weather sector, which just brings more and more resource, more advances into weather science. Uh, our, you know, NOAA National Weather Service, uh, not that I'm unbiased because I used to work there, but it's an incredible public asset. And weather.gov is not a bad place to go. Um, Simple, you can click down to your local area. The foundation beneath that, that web interface is a, is a two and a half kilometer, about a mile by mile pixelization. And they're, they're, they provide a lot of information on there. The other where it's really sort of guide yourself through what must be thousands of apps out there, right? You know, if you, if you like to be a little bit, you know, put your, your radar meteorologist hat on, there are some tremendous radar apps out there that you can look and follow storms and, and look for tornadic vortex signatures and all these different things. So just a lot out there. Farmers love the weather, right? I mean, it, it's always fun for me because not everyone I talk to loves the weather. And you get out and you talk to the farmers and, and they just, you know, they're, and they're good. They understand the weather. And they've been, you know, some of our best observers, you know, sitting out there on, uh, in their, at their home and, and watching the weather. So there are a lot of weather enthusiasts in the ag community. And the American Meteorological Society just this year launched a new program, sort of a community, a weather community called AMS Weather Band. And I think it's like $28 a year to join, but it's an awesome place to go, a website. They have presentations from different scientists talking about things, the update about different storm events. They have, you know, all these beautiful, spectacular pictures of different kinds of weather phenomena. So anyone who's sort of a, a weather enthusiast, it's a great place because it's all presented in that sort of weather enthusiast sort of level and in intent. So it's a great place. Um, but there's just a lot of information out there, Clint. I'd hate to point to one app over another because it's really personal preference. That's a great point. I mean, there are a ton of uh, ton of resources out there. You know, I, I've even noticed, you know, the uptick. It used to be you had to download a, a weather app of some sort that was kind of more of a national level. And what I've seen, you know, especially over the last probably, I don't know, probably six, seven years, um, our local news stations are getting their own weather apps, which, uh, you know, then they'll bring in your local news and everything. And, and it's really getting, it seems like hyper-localized, right? Uh, more and more as we, as we just continue down that technology path. You know, you also mentioned uh, FieldView, and I, I got to throw it out there, uh, you know, that uh, Dad and I actively use FieldView on, on our farming operation. And uh, we utilize the rainfall aspect of that, Brad, all the time. Uh, every rain event that comes through, uh, we love to see, uh, you know, we probably have seven, eight miles between our, our farming, you know, all of our different fields. Uh, and to see that variation. And I tell you what, when we go to check that, I, I, I've said this for a long time, the accuracy level that we see on a per field basis, because we have a few homesteads that are scattered through that you got a rain gauge on. Uh, I tell you what, we have just absolutely loved utilizing that app, along with, of course, all the other agronomic pieces that we feed all of our planting data into and everything else. But uh, our rainfall aspect of that, we utilize that every weather event. 
That's great. It's great to hear. And we, and we hear that from a lot of growers. There are, it's not equal across the entire growing area. There are a couple things that impact the quality, uh, but certainly the weather science team at, at Climate is, is really excited about the quality of rainfall estimates that our, our model produces. Uh, where you run into troubles if you're sort of too close to a radar, too far away from a radar, or the worst of all is if you're near a wind turbine. And <laughs> Because wind turbines, those pesky wind turbines yeah. definitely throw uh, throw some false readings out there. Yeah, they're tough because you know we build in a lot of algorithms that say anything that is bright on a radar but stationary and not moving, I'll assume that that's a building or a tower or something. So we we look for motion. Well, those wind turbines. <laughs> so our algorithms say, oh, that's moving, so it must be weather, and 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 it really messes things up. Uh, the, the rainfall estimates coming out of climate are, are, when we've done validation, they really show that they're the best of breed. So they're great. No, absolutely. Well, hey, I, I want to say thank you, Brad, for uh, for all that you've done and uh, and your teams there at, uh, at, at Climate Field View. Uh, and also, thanks for joining uh, the podcast today. I mean, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. It's been fun. Thanks a lot, Clint. Hey, I just want to give a special thanks to Brad for joining us here today on the podcast. That was a great conversation. Loved hearing all the differences between El Nino, La Nina, and how that impacts our weather across the Midwest. Also, if you like the podcast, we ask that you go out, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notified each and every time that we post out new content. Also, we're available wherever you listen to podcast at, so go ahead and give us a listen on those apps as well. And with that, we'll see you around the farm.